Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 123, and we're going to be talking about what it's like to go off-grid. By that, I mean offline. No news, no social media, no internet. We're also going to talk about vehicle suspensions, how they work, how that matters to you. We'll have a tale from the road from a good friend and a product review of Berkey water containers that might not be too happy making for some folks. Anyway, welcome folks. This uh, this episode I'm doing a little bit in a hurry because I'm about to leave on this cruise with 50 of my closest friends, some of whom I've never met, and it's going to be a super busy and super interesting week. We're going to go up to Alaska and explore. We're going to have a few days in Seattle, and then we're going to do another tour in Portland and Oh, that's Oregon, uh, not Maine. And uh, yeah, it's going to be really busy. So because of this, I'm not going to promise you an episode next week. That doesn't mean I won't have one. I might find time to do an episode while I'm on the cruise, but it does not look likely. Fair warning. All right, let's talk about what it's like to be offline. It doesn't matter where you sit on the political spectrum or what your opinion is of anything that affects society as a whole... These are trying times. (laughs) The news is set up to generate as much outrage and concern as possible because that increases viewership, which increases ad revenue. We understand that. But even with that factored out, there's a lot going on right now that is concerning. And, uh, well, what if you just opt out? What is the reality of that? Well, in the old days, this used to be called becoming a hermit, and there is an aspect of hermitage, or hermitorium, hermit, being a hermit, that uh, has always been a part of van life. Van life is an alternative lifestyle. This is a lifestyle that isn't mainstream. It's you doing something that is a little bit different, and how different it is is completely up to you. But folks, there are people who get in their vans and drive out to BLM land and don't have internet access and live a perfectly fulfilled life. The question is, are you that kind of a person? And I am going to test this out. Um, I, I can't do it right now because things are so crazy, but I have on my schedule of things to do this year a one-week no-internet trip where I'm just going to head out into the wilderness somewhere and spend a week without the internet and then report what that's like. Now, there's a big difference between a week without the internet and six months without the internet or five years without the internet. Mainstream life, especially in the West, and let's face it, just about everywhere, the internet is huge. It is a huge part of everybody's life. When the pandemic happened, everybody worked on the internet. Everyone gets their information on the internet. Everybody gets their entertainment on the internet. The internet is a major portion of most people's lives. And yet at the same time, we know that people lived for millennia without the internet. And some people today choose to live without the internet. And well, how are they doing that? Well, the answer is is that they are getting the things that most of us get from the internet in other ways, or they're eliminating the need for those things. So what do we use the internet for? We use it for communication, we use it for gathering information, and we use it for, you know, maintenance type things like paying bills and stuff like that. So let's take a look at each of those. Now, as far as communication goes, why do you need to communicate 
I mean, think about it. You don't actually need to stay in touch with people. <laughs> Most of us like to, to some extent, but you don't have to. And there are other ways to stay in touch. You can call somebody on the phone. You can write a letter. It's, it's interesting going back and reading about ex life experience during World War II and how everybody communicated via letter. Because even though phones existed, the war made phone usage overseas extremely difficult and extremely expensive. And most people sent letters. And it's funny reading the letters written in that time because they're not the same as you'd write now. Today, if you wrote a letter, it would be a little bit kind of nostalgic and you'd write a letter, either, if it's not an official letter, like saying, uh, you know, to your lawyer or whatever. But if you're writing a letter to a friend, it would just probably be a story about the things you've been doing and thinking and stuff like that. Back then, it was extremely practical. Like, I need these things and... I am here now. I don't know where I'll be in a month. I got your last letter. That's an important one you see all the time. You have to confirm that you received the communication because there's no way to know. It was a very different way of being, but it is a way that you could do now. There's nothing stopping you from doing that if you're willing to give up the convenience and connection that the internet provides. Now, what about getting information? Well, what information do you need? I mean, that's a serious question here. We sometimes feel like we need to be tied into the news. Like, you have to listen to the news every day. You know, that's just a rule. Is it? I mean, it's not. <laughs> you don't have to listen to the news every day. You don't have to listen to the news ever. That's completely an optional experience. And there are still things like newspapers. I mean, you could go into town once a week and stop by the library and read the newspaper. Yeah, that's an option. Or you could just listen to the radio for five minutes every day and catch the big things. Or you can just go without. Yes, we feel like there is some sort of virtue with being connected and understanding what's going on in the world today. I mean, you know, all right, so today is May 3rd, 2022. There's a bunch of stuff in the world today. Some big news broke last night. There's a war on. But none of us know what's going on in a little community in Central Africa that's really affecting people in a major way. When we say that we're staying connected by paying attention to the news, we're only seeing a very surface-level bit of the news. And the stuff that really affects people, the close-to-home stuff, hardly ever gets reported beyond the community. So in a way, we're already disconnected from the news because we do not know what's going on in that small town in Botswana right now. I don't. I could probably find out if I wanted to with the internet, which takes us to the next point. A lot of us use the internet for research. And if you disconnect from the internet, you are losing the greatest tool for research that has ever existed. I mean, full stop, bar none. The internet is the closest we've come to, to the sum of all human knowledge. And cutting yourself off from that, well, that's a huge thing, at least for me. I mean, you can hear my bias coming out here. I would have a really hard time disconnecting from Wikipedia, for example. In fact, when I go on cruises where I know I'm not going to have internet access, which happens less often these days, I bring Wikipedia with me. <laughs> I download Wikipedia because there have been so many times when I've been on these cruises and I've been like, huh, what island is that? Why is that island there? Why is it called that? What is this animal? And I would naturally in the normal world go to Wikipedia to look these things up and I can't. So 
Uh, yeah, I find that extremely frustrating. But that's just me. And again, we're talking about making the conscious decision to have that experience. Now, there's a safety aspect to this too, and it's easily overcome. I mean, staying connected to people means that if you're in trouble, people know and can help you. And if, if you're not connected, well, they can't. So is that something to be concerned about? Well, if it is, it's pretty easy to get one of those GPS devices uh, for backcountry people that you can press a button for SOS. It would be basically a one-time expense with a monthly subscription fee, but it wouldn't alter your life. I mean, it wouldn't be giving you information. You could live as a quote-unquote hermit with one of these and still have that as a safety factor. So there's that approach as well. But I suspect, and I don't won't be able to test this out until I actually do it. The biggest change is going to be in how attention is focused locally rather than globally. I believe that if you disconnect from the internet for any period of time, your focus and your thoughts are going to be much more focused on your surroundings and your immediate community. I think you're going to pay a lot more attention to things like the weather, how things change over time, such as I'm noticing this kind of bird today and I didn't notice this kind of bird two weeks ago and things like that. And I think that could be kind of nice. So I hope this summer I get a chance to actually try this out and just live a week or two weeks with no internet at all and see how it changes my perspective. I think at the very least it would be a good, I hate to use this term, detoxification of noise and patterns. And I think maybe you might want to think about doing it too. And, you know, you don't have to be in a van in the wilderness to do this. You can actually do it anywhere. But I think being in a van in a wilderness would put you in a new environment with this, this new approach. And that would possibly be the best way to change a perspective if that's what your goal was. Again, that's the thing about van life. You get to do what you want to do. And this may sound stupid to you and great. You don't have to do this. But for some of us, part of the reason we head out there is to get away from normal life and I have to admit, it has some appeal to me. So if you've had experiences with doing this, let me know. I would love to hear about them, and I will let you know what happens if I end up doing this too. But for now, I just throw this out there as an idea that you don't have to stay connected all the time. It's not required, and there are a lot of people who say it's not even healthy. Tech Talk. So um, a few people have asked me to talk more about how vehicles work, and I have a hard time with this a bit because this isn't a gearhead channel where, you know, we're going to talk about increasing the performance of your Hemi or anything like that, and I don't know that I'm actually qualified to do that, but I know the basics of how engines and machines work, and it has come in handy several times as I've been on the road and things have happened. And some people have asked, well, gee, I wish I had that knowledge so that I could also be somebody who could repair my own rig on the road. So I'm going to do a tech talk series here, just talking about the basics of how different aspects of vehicles work. And you can skip past it if you want. I will not be offended. Heck, I won't even know. But if you're somebody who just really doesn't understand how all this stuff works, you open the hood and it's just this massive wires and little computers and things that smell bad. Well, all right, this might help a bit. But today we're going to talk about suspensions. Now, first off, why is it called a suspension? I think anything you approach in a vehicle, 
it helps to start by figuring out why it's called what it is. Where did that name come from? Well, it's called a suspension because it literally means that you are suspended. And it goes way back to the days of wagons and carriages where... Okay, the earliest vehicles had a vehicle, which is basically a wooden box of some sort, and there were axles attached to that, which are just, there's a technical definition for them, but they're basically just things you put wheels on, and the wheels spin on them, or in some cases it's the axle that spins, but it's a spindle that you put wheels on. And they've often been made out of wood and metal and all that, and modern cars, they're totally different, but it doesn't matter, stick with me here. Okay, now if you take a box and you put axles on that box and you put wheels on those axles and you go over a bump, all of that energy from that bump is going to go into you. And so a long time ago they realized that if they suspended the box over the axles and wheels, they could use springs of varying kinds to absorb some of that shock. It's basically, if you've ever watched Star Trek, it's an inertial dampener. <laughs> it really is. It takes longer for the spring to react to the bump such that energy is dispersed and when you go over that bump you feel a slight jolt rather than this full force that, uh, that is very uncomfortable. In fact, if you watch westerns or whatever, you can see that their wagons are on big leaf springs and that's actually a fairly comfortable ride. Now, leaf springs, which most modern vehicles actually still have are springs that are made out of leaves of metal that are overlaid. And if you look under your vehicle in the back, you will see these long strips of metal attached to each other right over the wheel. Well, that's your leaf spring. That's your main suspension. And it's the same basic concept that goes all the way back to wagons. That hasn't changed much. But what has changed is there are now shock absorbers or... McPherson struts, which we'll get to in a second, but there are shock absorbers there that, well, they don't actually sh absorb shocks. They're, they're not a well-named thing. If you watch a vehicle going down the road, you can see these shock absorbers going up and down, and you might think, oh yeah, look at that. They're absorbing the shock from the bumps. But what their real purpose is, is to put counter pressure on the leaf springs so that when your wheel hits a bump and goes up, the shock will push it back down. So you've got two counteracting forces there, the shock absorber pushing the wheel down and the leaf spring allowing the wheel to go up, and that smooths out the ride a whole bunch. So when people say change your shocks, it may not improve your ride all that much, but it'll make your vehicle much safer because it will increase the contact between the road and the tire, and that's hugely important. So that's what shock absorbers are. By the way, they're very easy to change yourself. The most basic mechanic can do this, so don't pay crazy amounts of money. You can change your own shocks if you have even basic tools, so just know that. Okay, so I mentioned McPherson struts. What's that? Basically, McPherson's the guy who invented these things. There's, that name is still used. But a strut is just a shock that turns on itself. It pivots on itself. So they're often used on the front so that you can have your wheels turn and then that shock absorber is directly attached to the wheel assembly. It's just a different way of doing it. You really don't have to know that much about it. All you need to know about struts are that they're usually in the front, almost always with front-wheel drive vehicles, and they're sometimes in the back, but not usually in vans. In vans, you usually have shocks in the back. Now, in the Tiki Bago, which is a 1972 Winnebago, 
That has shocks in the front and the back. The shocks are attached to the front axle. But many vehicles have what's called independent suspension, where the, there is no actual axle. The wheels are attached independently. One last thing about suspensions. In the old days, vehicles had a frame, and then there was a body built on it. So there'd be like this flat piece of metal. The engine and the wheels and all that would be attached to that. And then the body, the part that stores all your stuff and that has your seats in it and all that, would be a separate piece that sat on that. And so you could actually separate those two things and have your frame and your body be two different parts. Well, nowadays we use what's called unibody, and almost all modern vans are made this way. But not the old big American vans. They tended to still be frame, uh, frame on body, or body on frame as they call it. The difference between these is that, well, if your frame and your body are one piece of metal, that's what unibody means, how do you suspend it? <laughs> how do you suspend the body? And the answer is that you don't. You just basically suspend the wheels. So only the wheels are suspended, not the whole body. So that is not going to be an issue for you. It really doesn't matter if you have body on frame or unibody. I just wanted you to be aware of the concept. Almost all vans now are unibody. The bad thing about unibody is, is that when you get into an accident, it's extremely hard to straighten things out so everything lines up the same, whereas body on frame, it was actually much easier. So, eh, it's worth it though, because unibody is actually a safer design. So, that's what we're going to do for the next few weeks, a little tech talk about something like that. We'll talk about alternators, we'll talk about water pumps, all those kind of things. And again, I'm not an expert, I'm not a mechanic, but I know a little bit, I know enough to actually have a conversation about these things, and maybe if you could get to that level, that would be useful for you too. Tales from the Road so my friend Hal, responding to my plea last week, asking for ideas, actually sent me an entire Tales from the Road segment. So thank you, Hal. And this theme may be similar if you listened last week. Hello, Jeff. Your most recent Tales from the Road about flying into Salt Lake City reminded me of a similar Tales from the Route, an air route that is. A few years ago, when I was still a lieutenant colonel on active duty in the U.S. Air Force, I was flying back from Washington, D.C. to Colorado Springs, where I live. Now, Colorado Springs is a city that is in what we call the front range, like Denver and Fort Collins, and as a result, we're fairly close to the mountains, the Rocky Mountains. As a result, there is an atmospheric phenomenon called a rotor, which means basically that as the air coming from the west spills over the mountains, it cascades down in kind of a, a swirling mass of gusts and wind that happens to be around but 14 to 17,000 feet pretty much all the time. If you fly from the east to the west in the United States, when you cross the Rockies, you're likely to feel a few bumps. And if you're down around 14 to 17,000 feet, you may, depending on the day and the weather, feel a lot of bumps. Well, this particular day we were flying back was a spring day where there was a lot of active weather. The plane was completely full, and as we neared Colorado, we began to have quite a bit of turbulence from the gusty winds blowing from the west. Now, I hate turbulence. I really don't like it. But I'm not scared of it, because as a pilot once told me, it's only air. Intellectually, I know that airplanes are stressed for this kind of beating from moving air. But for lots of folks, especially on a crowded airplane, you can imagine that fairly violent, moderate to severe turbulence is a little unnerving. So we were beginning to our approach into Colorado Springs. 
and as we got lower, we hit that 17 to 14,000 rate, and the airplane really started to bounce around. I happened to have a window seat, and I saw as we approached the runway, we were still about 100 feet in the air, and we were left of center line on the runway, not your usual place to land. Just a few seconds later, the engine spun up and we went around, the pilot having declared what we call a missed approach due to the turbulence. He tried one more time after circling in that turbulent weather to shoot an approach into Colorado Springs, and here's where it got really interesting, because I found out later that on our approach, we had the biggest wind gust of the day at around 72 miles per hour. Now, what made this kind of odd was, I was the only guy in our group in uniform, an Air Force uniform, on an airplane, in turbulence. And so I found many, many of my fellow passengers with looks of fear and concern on their face looking to me. I guess they were looking for reassurance, and I tried by gentle nods and thumbs up to indicate that even though I hated it, it wasn't a big deal. Our second approach was even worse than the first, and we veered off and ultimately ended up flying to Denver, where they have longer runways and are farther from the mountains. We landed there, rented a car, and drove to Colorado Springs. I guess because of my uniform, people assumed that anything involving aviation, I'd be an expert in. And I did know enough to know that it wasn't really a problem. But at the same time, I hated bouncing up and down as much as we did. But I helped our fellow passengers at least remain some measure of calm as we approached in a 70 mile an hour gust. So there's a tale from the route, the air routes above Colorado when a random lieutenant colonel in uniform tried to calm down a plane full of scared people. And if you hit turbulence like that yourself in the future, just remind yourself, it's only air. Thank you for that, Hal. Absolutely appreciate it. And for the record, Hal knows much more about this stuff than I do. I, not the van life stuff necessarily, but he knows more about flying because he is a former professor at the Air Force Academy. He kind of lives in Aviation Central. So thanks again, Hal. I absolutely appreciate you doing that for me. Product review. Oh boy. Okay. <clears throat> so I'm going to do something that I don't like doing, but I'm going to do it anyway, because that's how I is. So I'm going to review something I have never used, and I try not to do that, especially if it's a negative review. And I'm afraid this is going to be a negative review, and it's a negative review of something many, many, many of you love, and that is the Berkey water filter. If you browse Instagram or you look at all these fancy bills, you will often see this cylindrical metal thing sitting on counters, and that is the Berkey water filter. Berkey water filters are a very simple design where you have this large metal tube and you pour water in the top and it goes through these specially made filters and then you have pure water. Now, if you listen to Berkey, it's the purest water ever and a lot of health gurus and people who I generally don't trust swear that Berkey is the best filter. You'll hear that all the time. And there are some nice things about this filter. I mean, you don't have to install it. You basically just have to stick it on the counter and make sure it doesn't go anywhere. If you need to, you can collapse it to make it smaller because they do tend to be big. And it doesn't require any power or plumbing. So you can see the appeal for van life. And indeed, Foresty Forest has one. A lot of well-known van life folks use these and swear by them and love them and say they're the best thing ever. And here I am, not ever having used one, about to say, no, they're not. And 
I'm going to just lay out my reasons. You, as always, should make your own decisions. So my first problem with Berkey filters is that they're huge. They take up an incredible amount of space, and they're named weird. Like the big Berkey, which is the one I see most often, is actually the second smallest one. I don't really understand their naming there. But there are much smaller ways to filter your water if that's a concern for you. All right, one strike against them. They are huge. They're also a bad inefficient shape for van life. They're a cylinder, which kind of looks cool. I mean, I, I think they look nice sitting on the counter, but they're taking up a ton more space than they actually take up. If they were square, they would hold more water in the same amount of space. So that's not typically a van life value. <laughs> you know, we're trying to maximize our space usage and Berkey fails there. Also, because of the way the filter works, it's a gravity filter. There has to be a lot of air in the system. So you pour water in the top and it trickles down into the container at the bottom and that's where you get your water. But more than half of that space is going to be just air. So again, it is really a space hog. Another problem with these things, and one of the biggest problems, is that they're crazy expensive. Now, let's compare just for two brands. You've got the Berkey, and you've got the old-fashioned Brita filters, right? The Brita that you can put in your refrigerator, and they do the make them for faucets too. Brita being probably the pioneer company in all this water filtration stuff. Well, they basically work the same, um... If you have a Brita filter in your fridge, it is also a gravity filter, and they're just using different kinds of filters. But look how much less space the Brita takes up. And what are your results? Well, this is where things get really interesting and problematic for me with the Berkey. The results from the Brita tests you can find online, and they're certified. They're certified by the NSF. They're certified by ANSI. They're public. They have been vetted by third-party organizations that are supposed to be bias-free, and yet Berkey won't submit to these same tests. So everything they say about their results is based on tests they've done, often long, long ago, and a lot of those tests can't be duplicated by anybody else. There's a big New York Times article about how they tried to reproduce these tests and weren't able to, although they admit that they didn't have the same conditions and things like that. But what they found was that their water was significantly more contaminated coming out of their Berkey than Berkey said it was from their tests. And their filters didn't last anywhere near as long as Berkey said they did. And Berkey filters cost like $160 just for the filters. Now, Berkey says you can clean these filters, which is an, an advertising thing, is that, hey, you don't have to replace them, you can clean them. And all you have to do to clean them is scrub them with, like, a Scotch-Brite sponge. But when you look at how they're made, I have to wonder how much cleaning that's going to do. A Berkey filter is a big piece of charcoal impregnated with an ion exchange resin, which is basically how water softeners work. And I can see why that would be effective, but I can't see how you could clean that necessarily. If they're ion exchange, that means ions come in and attach to this resin, and then another ion is let off, but it's, it's theoretically one that's less harmful. The way you clean those in a water softening system is with salt water, brine, and you don't have that here, so I don't understand how they're being cleaned. So... That's the biggest thing for me. Um, there's some other practical problems, too. Uh, Berkey's are very slow. 
So while, yes, you could go to a river and pour some water from the river into your Berkey, but you wouldn't be able to drink it for a while because the nature of gravity filters is they're very slow, and Berkeys are slow even for gravity filters. So I don't trust Berkey's advertising, and I especially don't trust the people who hype for Berkey. I saw Goop listed on their main page, and folks, of all these companies, Goop is about the least reliable for telling the truth. Many products that Goop sells are actually harmful. It doesn't take much Googling to find this out. So, yeah, in my opinion, if you're looking for a water filter, you can do much better for much less money. You can save space, you can save money, you can save time, and Arguably, you can get better results from one of the other filters, which, honestly, the only filter I've reviewed on this show is a Brita gravity fed that I particularly like. But I'm sure that any of the others would be just fine. In RVs, Berkeys are not as popular because RVs have more space, and under the sinks there are the cartridge filters installed in many RVs. I actually have one in the Tiki Bago, and they work just fine. I mean... I don't know. It seems like there's this hysteria about getting the purest possible water or you will die. And, well, it just has to be pure enough. (laughs) So overdoing water filtration doesn't make much sense to me to begin with. But I don't think a Berkey filter is the best way to go, despite what all the hype is. You may disagree. I'm okay with that. I can only present to you what I have found out there and... I think if you're on a budget, you definitely should be looking somewhere other than Berkey for your water filtration. A place to visit. So many years ago, a friend of mine heard me say something bad about Texas. I believe what I said was, uh, Texas is missing an S. And being from Texas and having lived there her whole life, she took some offense to this and said, you don't know Texas. And I was like, well... All right, you're probably right. At that time, I hadn't traveled much in Texas. I had been there. And she said, I challenge you to hop in my car for a week, and I will show you Texas. And and she did. <laughs> and you know what? She totally changed my opinion on Texas. Texas is a state of wonders. It is a diverse state. There's all kinds of different people there. It is very, very big And there are a lot of interesting things to see. Now, I do think Texas has a pride problem. I do not understand why Texas is so proud of itself. I don't get it. But aside from that, there are interesting things to see there. And one of them is, well, a bit unusual. It is the Dr. Pepper Museum in Waco, Texas. Now, I'm not a big Dr. Pepper drinker. Growing up in the North, Dr. Pepper was kind of seen as a novelty drink, and I understand that down South it's a staple drink. Like, if you go to the fountain, you're going to have Coke and Dr. Pepper in the fountain, which we never, ever saw when I was growing up as a kid. So I went to this museum, didn't expect much more than seeing a bottling factory, but no, it was actually very interesting. They had a whole history of the product, where it came from. It came from pharmacies, like many of these sodas did, and how there was this campaign where you were supposed to drink it several times a day, and they had a clock on their advertising, and they explained that, and it was 10 to 4. You were supposed to have a Dr. Pepper at 10 o'clock, 2 o'clock, and 4 o'clock. Pretty interesting. It was kind of seen as a nutritional supplement. But one of the most fascinating things to me was in the factory was the actual well that all the water came out of for all the Dr. Pepper in the whole world. Now, we've moved on from that now, but just seeing that basically they found a well and built a building around it and then built a soda factory around that, I thought that was pretty interesting. 
if you are ever in the Waco, Texas area, and I do recommend you visit Waco, Texas. They also have the Texas Ranger Museum. Check out the Dr. Pepper Museum. It's a fun little few hours, and I guarantee you're going to see something you didn't expect. And yes, you can, of course, try out some Dr. Pepper while you're there. And even if you don't like Dr. Pepper, you kind of should do that just to be in the theme. Resource Recommendation A few weeks ago, I talked about the Merlin Bird ID app and how great it was, and I still love this thing. And I found a new feature in this that they added that I hadn't played with, and it's so good that I'm going to talk about it again. So, as I've said, we bought this land on the Illinois River, and there's all kinds of birds there, and a lot more birds than we see in Chicago. And, you know, we just would kind of like to know what birds we're looking at. And so I pull out Merlin, and I'm doing its normal thing, like what were the main colors of the bird, what size was it, what time of day was it, what was it doing, all that. And it comes up with suggestions. And then I saw this thing called Sound ID. And I thought, oh, geez, I've played with that on so many other apps, it's never going to work. You know, the idea is that the app will hear a bird singing and tell you what it is. And it sounds like a great thing, but it never worked. Until it did. Sound ID on Merlin is brilliant. Basically, you press the record button and you leave your phone somewhere, and it will record every bird it hears and then make a list. And you will know that you have all these birds near you. And if you watch the list in real time, as the bird's singing, their name on the list will highlight. So if you hear a Peter, 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 you will look down and the list will have lit up on tufted titmouse because that's a bird that makes that sound. And it's amazing. You can then save this and you can basically have a list of all the birds that were near you that day. At least the birds that were making sound. Now, it's this is a new thing. It doesn't have every bird in the world in it. But we were able to find that we have rare species on our property, which isn't too surprising given that we're in a flyway on the river. And... That was pretty exciting. And one of them it said that we had was a yellow warbler, which is a rare bird. And I thought, hmm, I wonder if this thing's just making a mistake. And then I saw one. A yellow warbler landed in the tree just in front of me, and I did the actual visual ID, and sure enough, it was there. So this this is a lot of fun. Anytime you're camping and you hear birds, you can just press record on Sound ID and you will have a list of all the birds where you are that you can save. And it's free. Yes, it's free. This is part of Cornell Labs at Cornell University. It's on Google and Apple. I used it on Apple. I imagine it's pretty much the same on Google. I love it. So check it out. Sound ID, part of the Merlin Bird ID app. If you like birds or you're just a little bit curious about them, you definitely want to have this app. Well, folks, thank you very much for listening to episode 123. Uh, As you're listening to this, there's a very good chance that I am traveling. And because of that, once again, there will probably be no episode in the first week of May. Or the second week of May. I guess this is the first week of May. (laughs) Silly me. Music, as always, is by Simon Wegg. And until next time, remember the words of Will Cuppy. A hermit is simply a person to whom civilization has failed to adjust itself. <laughs>